The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au We'll take your Bibles, please, this morning to the book of Ephesians again. I had fully intended to just skip over the verse number 17 and go on to verse 18 after last Sunday morning, but I was walking through the church, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, and I went into the little prayer room, which is the old church office back there, and if you go in there, you'll see on the wall, we've printed out some of Paul's prayers. And I was just reading those prayers and praying them back to the Lord and seeking God's blessing on our church as a whole from the prayers that Paul prayed for the churches in the first century. And what struck me as I was reading and praying was how often he mentioned the will of the Lord, and God's will, that they would know it and they would live in obedience to it and I went back to my office and I started thinking through the message and what we should look at. And I had fully intended that we would just move through Ephesians and finish maybe in August or possibly in September. But sometimes when the Lord lays something on your heart, you need to stop and listen. You may wonder why I cover some sections quickly and some seconds, sections very slowly. My heart's desire is that I would always preach what God would lay on my heart regardless of the pace or the schedule. And so we're just going to take the time to look at one verse this morning. There is in your folder there a bright yellow sheet of uh, sermon notes. Uh, you will see a lot of Bible verses, cross-references on there. Please don't panic. Here's what I would suggest you do with these note sheets. I saw, I picked one up off the of a chair a couple of weeks ago, and somebody had gone through, and as I would mentioned the verse, they just ticked them off all the way through. That's a great way to do it, keep track of where we're at. The other thing you can do is, as we're using those verses as cross-references, and I do that simply so that you know what I'm saying isn't just made up out of my own mind. I'm actually basing what I'm saying constantly on Scripture. If there's something you don't understand, or you want to look at better, or you want to find out more about, just circle that verse and keep going, and then maybe later in the afternoon you can stop and go back and listen, look at that verse again and figure out what does it exactly say and how does it work its way in the sermon. And maybe there are truths about the Bible that you weren't aware of before. We all learn things. We all should be learning things about the Lord and about Scripture as we go through this life of faith. So you can do that and keep track uh, with the message and also use as a reference later on. There are three things I want to set before us in the la these three weeks, last week, today, and next week. And the idea comes from verse number 15, or 15 through 21. So why don't we read that first, and then we'll look at the outline. Verse 15 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, the Bible says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, 
always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Three things. He's talking about walking wisely before the Lord. So number one, walk wisely, taking full advantage of the time. And we saw that last week. Secondly, walk wisely by understanding what the Lord's will is. And we're going to look at that today. And thirdly, we walk wisely in this world by being continually filled with the Spirit. And we'll look at that next Sunday. The text before us is really that verse number 17. Because of this, do not become foolish but understand the will of the Lord. So what is the message of the text? Simply, because of this, looks back to the main idea of being careful how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, we're to be careful that we walk and live as wise people. And the inference there is, in order to be careful how we walk, we must do those things, take full advantage of time, and so on. In verse 17, Paul commands us, do not become foolish. Now, the word become here means the idea of entering into the state of something. The state we're to avoid is foolishness. Now, the word for foolish just means ignorant or senseless or unwise or foolish. In context, it's best to understand it as foolish by ignorance because Being believers, and Paul is addressing the church, believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot become actual fools the way the Bible describes them because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 2.14, the fool walks in darkness, but we are to walk as children of light, light in the Lord. We saw that in Ephesians 5 verse 8. Secondly, the fool is one who despises wisdom. He thinks very little of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. But we know, as we saw last week, that we who have come to know God, we're always to be living in the fear of the Lord. And thirdly, the fool says in his own heart, there is no God. Now, clearly, we as believers cannot go there because as believers in Christ, we believe fully and wholeheartedly that there is a God and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the idea is not that we can become fools, but that we can walk in a foolish manner. Paul's concern is, having been born again, he's saying, don't remain a babe in Christ, but grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about that in Ephesians 4, about how we're to grow into the mature man and so on. The contrast to becoming foolish or ignorant is that we must understand what the will of the Lord is. And the idea of understanding there is to mean to simply to know and comprehend the nature and the meaning of the will of the Lord for our lives. By its context, Paul's use of the commands, he makes so many commands. If you would take a, a Bible uh, strong concordance or a search program, you go through and identify all the different command verbs in that passage. There's so many of them. In my Bible, I take a green pen, I underline two lines under every command verse, verb, so I realize this is what God is telling me I need to do. The first half of the book of Ephesians is very heavy in what we call indicative verbs, and they're verbs of state. This is what we are. But imperative verbs tell us what we are to do. And all through this passage, there is a doing emphasis and what we are supposed to behave and how we're supposed to obey God. 
And in the context of that, when he says we must understand what the will of the Lord is, he's using in the sense of understanding in order to obey the will of God. It isn't just knowing the will of God. That's not what cuts it. In fact, we're going to see in a few minutes about how just knowing the will of God but not obeying it is a terrible disaster. We never want to be doing that. Okay? To understand the will of the Lord is not merely to know it, but to be actively involved in doing it. Now, notice also he says here, the will of the Lord. He doesn't say the will of God. The question, of course, comes up, does it make a difference? And I'm going to simply say, no, it doesn't. We would argue very easily and very clearly from Scripture, the Lord is God and God is the Lord. So you can take those terms interchangeably. And most commentators would say he really is talking about the will of God, the will of the Lord. There is no difference there. So we're going to treat it as the broad picture of the will of God and the will of the Lord. So... What is the will of God? And we're going to answer a whole series of questions. I'm amazed. Every time I meet young Christians, those on fire for the Lord, one of the first questions I'm often asked is, how can I know what God's will for my life is? And it's an easy question to answer. You look through Scripture. You see what God clearly reveals for you to do. And you spend your time and your energy doing those things that God has revealed, which are your, His will for your life. And when you're living in good fellowship and good communion with God, striving to do the things that please the Lord, striving to obey what you see clearly as God's will for your life, then you can do whatever you'd like. Because when your heart and your mind are in tune with the Lord, your heart is fully committed to the Lord, He will lay on your heart things that He would like you to do, and your desires and His will begin in a way to to mesh together. And you'll understand what the will of the Lord is for your life in a specific sense. But we do want to answer some questions about the will of God or the will of the Lord from the text and from the wider text of Scripture. How do we define God's will? Well, theologian Wayne Grudem put it like this, and I'll read it twice. He says, God's will is that attribute or characteristic of God whereby He approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. I'm going to read it again. This is a long one, okay? Here we go. He says, God's will is that attribute or characteristic of God whereby God approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. We'll unpack it a little bit. God knows and approves and works to bring about every action necessary to accomplish His single great purpose. And that is to gather all things together under one head who is Jesus Christ. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. That's God's purpose and it's according to His will. The beautiful thing is that God's will is in agreement with His holiness and His righteousness, so that God's will is never going to be for our detriment. God's will is always going to be for His glory, for our good, and for our everlasting joy. 
It isn't that obeying God's will is going to be the worst thing in your possible life. I, I met a young Christian one time and said, I'm, I really want God's will for my life, but I'm so afraid he's going to send me to the darkest part of Africa to be a missionary. Well, I've seen pictures of Africa, and it doesn't look all that dark to me, so I don't know what that problem was, but they were, they were so afraid. Oh, God's going to get me to do something terrible. He'll make me marry the, the worst person in the world. No, that's not how God works. It doesn't work that way. God's will, whatever it is, is always for His glory, for our good and for our everlasting joy, including things like cancer, including things like heartbreak. You say, didn't you just contradict yourself? No. The thing is to understand that whatever God does, whatever God works His will in our life, it is always for our good and for His glory. He is working all things according to his purposes. How's that verse go? Romans chapter 8. It's not in your list, but we'll go there anyway. Romans 8, verse 28. I don't want to misquote it. He says, and we know that God causes all things. That's what we're talking about here. To work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So everything about God's will is for your ultimate good and your ultimate joy, even the difficult things that you go through in this life. And when you keep that in perspective, it's so much easier to submit yourself to God's will and say, you know what, if this is God's will for my life, I know he has in mind his glory and my good and my lasting joy, so I go along with it. I submit myself to it. God's will is the governing counsel that moves him to act. The Bible says in Daniel 4.35 that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God's will cannot be legitimately questioned. We might argue, we might get frustrated at times, we cannot raise a legitimate question and bring a charge against God for his will. That's the whole book of Job. Job, all through his struggles, wants to bring a court case against God. He wants to present his charges to God. You've dealt with me unfairly. And when God finally appears and finally begins to speak to Job, he doesn't once explain what he's doing. He simply makes the point that I am God. I'm sovereign. You can trust me. And Job, all through it, even though he wants to contend with God like that, he maintains his faith in God. And he's cleared at the end of the day as righteous before God. God's will cannot be legitimately questioned. Paul makes the point in Romans 9, 15 to 18, that God's will is sovereign. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. It does not depend on man, but rather God who wills. Paul makes the point in Romans 9, 19, who can resist God's will? Nobody can. He brings it about. God's will is always according to his good pleasure. The Bible says in Psalm 115 and verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In Job 42 verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's will is not subject to any outside force or pressure. There is nobody that walks into heaven and puts a gun to the side of God's head and says, you better do this or else. 
There's nothing. There's nobody or no thing. There's not even a law greater than God that can force God to do anything. He does everything according to His good pleasure, according to His will. By the way, in the bulletin, I found a great article by R.C. Sproul that goes into a little more of the theology of God's will. If you've got to check and take a look through that a little bit later. Or now if you want to. So what is the extent of God's will? How far does God's will extend? Does he have will over certain places and people and times or over everything? The Bible says in Psalm 135 and verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven, in earth, in the seas, in all the deeps. In other words, everything in creation falls under the will of God. All of creation, also all the nations. In Isaiah 48, verse 14, the Lord will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. All the nations of the earth are subject to God's will. So what is God's will for mankind? What is it? Some general terms, general senses. I'll go through this quick and you can get them from me later if you want. But here we go. In Ephesians 1, verse 5. God predestined to adopt and, ho- and make us holy, holy according to his will. I'll try it again. In Ephesians 1 verse 5, he predestined us to adoption and holiness according to his will. In Revelation 4 verse 11, the Bible says that God created all things according to his will. In John 1 verse 13, our regeneration, our being made alive, made sons and daughters is according to God's will and not man's. In Galatians 1 verse 4, our salvation from an ungodly world is according to God's will. In John 3.16, our receiving eternal life by faith is God's will. Our sanctification, our being made holy, that is God's will. And our perseverance. You know, God is cheering us on all the way to the end. His will is for every person that comes to faith in Christ and repentance of sin and begins to walk with the Lord will finish that journey all the way to the very end. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 talks about a great cloud of witnesses. And the idea, the picture he paints there for us is like a stadium. And as a runner is running down the track, I don't do running very much, but as he's running down the track, all the people on the side are, are cheering So Spurgeon and Calvin and Martin Luther, Jim Elliott, all these great saints who have gone on ahead of us are standing in the stands of heaven, looking down the track of the earth, watching you run that race, and they're cheering you on. God has designed and purposed that we would persevere in our faith to the very end. All those works of God are on behalf of us, are according to God's will. That's what He desires. That's His good pleasure for you in your life. You take all those things and take two main headings, and we'll look a little more closely at two main headings of those things about God's will. Number one, the salvation of sinners from God's wrath and the sanctification of those God has saved. And we're slowly working our way back towards Ephesians 5.17. The salvation of God's people is according to God's will. Listen to what Jesus said. This is amazing. John 6.38-40. to He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And he describes it. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds and who believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's God's will. It's God's will that we all see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We see him as a savior dying on a cross. We also see him in the glory of his person up exalted into heaven. And having seen him and believed in him, we be saved. And it's God's will. It's the will of the father to finish that work at the very end. In Acts 2 verse 23, the Bible says that this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In Galatians 1 verse 4, the Bible says this, God gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Think about that, brothers and sisters. God's will is to save his people, his elect. God planned from before the world began. His will included Christ suffering and dying on a cross. Jesus dying on the cross was not God's plans B. It was his plan from eternity past. It is God's will and God's desire for you and I to come to faith in God. It's God's will and desire for you and I to repent of sin, to turn completely away from sin. It's God's will. It's his good pleasure to adopt you into his family. He doesn't take you grudgingly. He delights to say, this is my son and this is my daughter in the faith. It is God's will that we have an intimate relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Understanding and obeying will, God's will, which Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5.17, first of all begins with faith in Christ. And so let me ask you, i got to ask you, do you know what it means to be born again? Do you know what it truly means to trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Do you know what it means to turn away from sin? Not just for a moment. I'm not talking about just feeling bad about your sin for a little while while some preacher preaches, but you turn away a little bit then go right back to it again. I'm talking about turning completely away from sin and striving with all your heart to live for God, trusting Him every step of the way. You know what that means? You know the truth of that? Because let me tell you, if you're trying to understand the will of God and you haven't come to that point first, the rest of it will make no sense whatsoever. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. And one of the great problems with my generation and generation behind mine or in, coming after me is that so many of us have gotten the point of salvation and we've just pushed aside sanctification and we want very little to do with it. As long as my eternity is secure, I can live any way I like in this world. And so many people in my generation are living with that idea that you can do that. And Jesus is going to say so powerfully, you cannot. The sanctification of his people is God's will. That's the second point there. God's making holy of every born-again follower of Christ. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He actually nails the point down. God did not call you and save you so you can live a life of impurity and ungodliness. He called you and saved you so He could make you holy, to make you like Christ. That's His good pleasure. And here's the point. God's will is not salvation apart from sanctification. It's not being saved and having a home in heaven and living any which way you like until you get there. The very nature of salvation requires sanctification as well. God saved us from His wrath against sinners to set us apart and make us holy and righteous and Christ-like. Paul commands us in Ephesians 5.17 to understand the will of the Lord that we are not merely saved as a fire escape from hell. We are saved to be set apart to God. It's His desire that we be His people to portray His image to the world around us. So understanding and obedience to God's will is so critical. And I'm going to explain how we work that out in just a bit. But first of all, why is understanding, why is this so important? Why take a whole 45-minute sermon or an hour and a half, however long it takes me, to unpack one verse? Why? It is important because of this. What I just said, believing in Jesus, you cannot live any which way you want. Jesus Jesus himself answered the question very powerfully when he said, It is not those who say, Lord, Lord, who are truly born again. It is those who do the will of his Father in heaven. How many of us can say, Lord, Lord? He's my Savior. He's my God. I love Him, but I live any which way I please. Jesus said, you cannot do that. In fact, you will not do that because in that coming day, I will say, depart from you, from me. I never knew you. Whatever relationship you thought you had, you did not. It is not about saying, Lord, Lord. It's about doing the will of the Father in heaven. Acceptance into God's family as adopted sons and daughters of God is displayed by active obedience to God's will. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 12. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And too many guys have made too much about brother, sister, and mother. All he's saying is... Those who obey my will, they're my intimate family relations. We're adopted into his family. But if we're ones who just say, Lord, Lord, and do whatever we want, first of all, it's a lie. Because to say Lord is to put him in a place of master, savior, authority over us. And to do whatever we want means that we don't really submit to his authority. We're just saying it. It's just lip service. That's why it's so important. And listen, you cannot make a profession of faith in Christ. You can say in front of a whole church, you can get baptized and then continue to live an ungodly, disobedient lifestyle and expect that you are truly saved. I know that's hard. I was was reading this week about church growth, guys. You want to grow a church? Don't preach this. You want to grow a church? Speak about all the happy things in Scripture. 
how to overcome obstacles in your life, how to live your best life now. Pardon for that reference. This is not how you grow a church. But I'm not concerned about growing a church that's full of people that are going straight to hell. I'm sorry, but I won't entertain a church straight into hell. I'd rather say things that people don't want to hear, punch hard with the Scripture, because I'm absolutely convinced if we don't preach the truth, if we don't preach the gospel the way Jesus said it and taught it, one day I will stand before God and He will say, why did you not preach my truth? And I will have to give an answer, and I won't have an answer that will pass. So the simple reality is Jesus says, those who say, Lord, Lord, but don't do my will, do not expect to be saved. The proof of your salvation is not your profession of faith. It is possession of faith. Do you trust God? Because in the Bible, trusting God is always accompanied by obedience to God. The proof of our salvation is not that you come to church every Sunday or every few Sundays because religion everywhere has faithful attendees. That doesn't make any difference. The proof of your salvation is not that you serve in some capacity in a church because religions have faithful servants and ministers all over the place. The proof of your salvation, absolute proof, is the fruit you bear as a Christian. The fruit of holiness, the fruit of changed life, the fruit of a mouth that speaks glory to God and prays to God and doesn't turn around and curse the way around. The other side of his mouth. The real proof of salvation is a life that's lived in obedience to the will of God. And I'll tell you right now, God challenged me deeply as I meditated and thought about these things all through the week. How often do I go off and do things without first thinking about the will of God in my life? And all through Scripture, you see it. They submit their actions, their works, their doings to the will of God. Joshua, reading that story just this week in my own Bible readings. And he comes into the land and one guy, one man, Achan, takes some gold and some silver and a Babylonish robe and he hides it under his tent and he breaks God's command. And God's, and Joshua, sorry, sends the people out to fight the next city, Ai. Doesn't seek God's counsel. Sends them out. They get chased away. And Joshua goes before God with his robe torn and weeping. He sin the camp. And part of that sin is he did not seek God's will first before he, out, before he acted. God has made it crystal clear in his word that legitimate proof of salvation is this, that you and I are actively living in obedience to his word, that we actively live by faith in God, trusting God all the way. That you and I actively live in love for God and for each other. That we are striving always to do the will of God. Not just when we're at church or not just when we're with our Christian friends, but even when we're on an ungodly business or an ungodly job site or an ungodly company or ungodly friends. We put our Christian away and hide it lest anybody see it. Sorry to lay it heavy. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry because I know if I lay a heavy, I hope I'll provoke you to think. One of the things that Jesus did when he finished preaching was he laid down heavy warnings that if somebody would ignore his teaching, they knew fully walking away that if they ignored his teaching, they were going to hell. They would have no salvation. 
And I've been admonished by other men. When you finish preaching the gospel, warn them about the folly and the foolishness of ignoring the message of the Bible. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are in Christ, are you sure? The Bible says in first, I think it's 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, let a man examine himself to see whether he is in the faith. Take a good, long, hard look in the mirror of Scripture and examine your life, examine your your mouth, your words, the things you say and think and do. Are they fruit of a life that has truly been saved by God, a life that is truly born again and walking with the Lord Jesus Christ? Take a good look. Well, let's move on. How can then we understand and obey God's will? Remember I said earlier that we would look at how God accomplishes sanctification in terms of our obeying God's will. Well, here it is. And the bare basics of God's word uh, to work in us, to make us holy by our obedience can be boiled down to an old Sunday school song that we used to sing. It went something like this. Read your Bible, pray every day, obey all the way, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Now, I know that's not exactly how it goes. I added a line in there because I always thought the song was missing one line. It is exactly this. How does God accomplish salvation? Re- uh, not salvation, sanctification. It's this. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Obey God and what you see him calling you to do and you will grow, grow, grow. It's exactly how it works. So first of all, number one, we pray for God to teach us His will. The psalmist in Psalm 143 verse 10 prayed this, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. It means this, pray, cry out to God to teach you, to show you what His will is. Our Heavenly Father is a loving and a kind and a gracious Father. And just as sure as a little daddy loves to take his little boy or little girl and to teach them things, spend time with them, showing them simple actions and, and skills and habits, so our God loves to teach us and explain and show us His ways and His will. Notice in that verse, I read again, Teach me to do your will, O God, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. It involves the work of the Holy Spirit, which by implication involves the Scriptures. Taking the Word of God and the Spirit of God, teaching you the Scriptures. I was so thrilled to hear that one of the ladies' Bible studies has decided, committed together to memorize all the ver- all those fighter verses you know, the ones in your bulletin up there with a little Bible picture? They're memorizing them. Why? Why are they doing that? Because they know if they get the Word of God off of the page, into their mind, and down into their heart, the Spirit of God can take that Word of God and affect change as they meditate and think on it, as they're memorizing it. That's just the, the force of memorizing it will cause them to think about what they're reading, what they're memorizing. God uses His Spirit and His Word to affect that change. So pray for God to teach you His will. Pray specifically according to God's will. You say, how do I do that? Well, here's one very simple way. We pray Scripture. I put, like I told you, in that back the little prayer room back there, Paul's prayers up on the wall in big print. Go in there. Read those prayers. Open your Bible as you work your way through, as you come across the prayers of Scripture. Pray them. 
Take every verse of Scripture as you read it and ask God to show you how you can pray that verse into your own life. Take God's Word. That's His will, right? Nobody can argue that God's world word is against His will. So as you're reading His Word, take what it says for you and pray that into your life. Pray the, script, pray the prayers of Scripture. One of the parts of my vision for Noble Park Baptist Church, which I am working on for the next QBM, is to develop an ongoing prayer ministry where we will be able to encourage each other as saints and brothers and sisters in the Lord to be praying Scripture and praying Scripture into each other's lives. Cry out to God that we would fill us with the knowledge of His will. That's one of Paul's prayers. How are we going to grow? How is God going to change us? We pray for Him to teach us His will, and we pray Scripture into our lives. Number two, we prove what the will of God is. Romans 12, 1 and 2, famous verses. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect." We prove what God's specific will is by continually presenting our bodies. And that doesn't just mean this. That means this and this. The heart, the mind, the body. We present to God as a sacrifice. God, take me and use me for your will. Use my mind, as failing and weak as it is, for your will. Use my heart, heated up, white hot for Christ. And use it. Here's my body. Here's my hands, my feet, my mouth. Use them for your glory. Secondly, we continually refuse to be pressured into the world's mold. Young men, young women, listen. Do not let the fashion magazines and the culture magazines and the business magazines push you into the mold of the world and make you look just like the world. Scares me to death. Sometimes you'll see the magazines and what passes for modest clothing. Don't let it push you into, your, into its mold. Continually refuse. He said, do not be conformed. Push against it. But continually renew your mind so that we're transformed into Christ's image. How does that happen? Renewing our mind happens as we soak it in God's Word. We keep pulling God's Word into our mind and keep refreshing our thoughts, refreshing the way we think by soaking it in Scripture. Literally, soak your head in the Word of God that God's Word might work its way from here down to here and out to here. Continually renewing your mind so that you're being transformed, being changed from the inside out. And the way we understand the will of God is we pray for instruction in what God's will is. Lord, show me your will. Show me your will for what I should do this day. We prove what it is by renewing our minds in Scripture, by refusing to allow the world to dictate how we think or act, and by continually offering ourselves to God for His use. Thirdly, submit everything to God's will. Everything. No holding back. Paul said this, listen, in Romans 1, he's talking to the Romans about his plans. He says, For God whom I serve in the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son is my witness, 
as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. You know what he's saying? I wanted to come to you before, but it was not God's will for me to come to you before. So I'm praying now, at last, if possible, I may come to you by the will of God. He pray, or James says this in James 4.15, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Both Paul and James are teaching us to approach everything in real, prayerful submission to God's word. How many of us make great plans to do this or that, career-wise, or relationship, even ministry, without submitting those plans to God and to His overriding will? But be careful with this. Easiest thing in the world to do is to make all your plans, do all your research, make everything the way you've decided to do, and then sprinkle a little bit of God's will on top, like, well, if the Lord wills, we'll do this, but you've got everything sorted out and planned out ahead of time. God has an amazing way of changing your plans. I'll tell you a story. Uh, a friend of mine's dad, Jabe, his name is Jabe Nicholson. Uh, it's J. Boyd Nicholson, but they called him Jabe. And his dad was flying somewhere. And his dad was an itinerant preacher uh, for years in Canada and America and around the world. And he was at an airport, and there was, he was waiting on his flight, little tiny flight to take off. And a lady came over to him from in a uniform of the airline and said, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Nicholson, but there's been a bit of a mistake. Uh, you can't get on the flight. And he said, no, you don't understand. I'm supposed to preach the gospel in that next place. I'm going. She said, I'm sorry, sir, there has been a mistake. You can't get on that flight. And he's thinking, but, you know, the Lord, surely the Lord wants me to preach the gospel in that next place. And he began to pray. And he went back to the lady and said, look, you know, is there anything you can do? These people are expecting me to be there. They're waiting for me to arrive. Surely there's a way to get on the plane. She said, I'm sorry, Mr. Nicholson, there is no way you can get on that plane. There has been a mistake. There's been something's happened. You can't get on. And finally, in frustration and a little bit grumpy, he gave in and he went and sat down. He waited for the next flight to come. That flight he was supposed to get on took off and crashed and everybody died. <laughs> it's like the guy who got stuck at the red light when he was going his way to the Twin Towers on 9-11 and never made it because the tower fell down before he got there. And Jabe Nicholson Sr. went back to the airline. He said, there was a young lady here. He said, I was rather rude to her, and I'd like to just say thank you because the flight that she stopped me from getting on crashed. And the airline said, yes, we know all about the crash. And they said, what young lady? And he said, there's a young lady here in the airport. And they said, no, sorry. And he had no idea who it was, but he's convinced, and I think he's probably right, that it was God put an angel there to do it. God has a way of changing your plans. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot was working in the Amazon jungle with a tribe after her husband died. She went to a different area of the jungle and she was working and she was preaching the gospel. She was working for five years, I think it was, translating and, and developing language. She had all her notebooks and, and something happened and uh, for some reason she had to fly back to America and leave everything behind and she left everything in the care of a young man who came over to take over the work and she took off and something happened and he disappeared and all of her work burned. It was burned in a fire. All lost. You say, why? doesn't make sense. But listen, God has a way of stepping in and changing our plans. 
And Paul says, listen, it's, if I'd love to come and see you, I'm praying now, if at last, by God's will, I may come to you. He was submitting everything in his life to the overriding will of God for him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we understand what the will of God is, we submit everything to it. It's not where I go to church and what I do for a job, but who I date and marry. That's my business, not God's. No, it's not. Every part of your life is God's business. And when Paul says that God works all things for our good, he doesn't go 98% close enough. He works everything. And Paul is saying to us, he's giving us an illustration that we submit everything in our lives to his will. Every single part of my life must be submitted to God's will. We pray for God to teach us his will. We renew our minds by soaking them in scripture and we submit ourselves completely to God and he will reveal to us. It's amazing how God does this. He reveals to us the ungodly habits that must stop and the godly habits that must start. I'm amazed how often I go to do something that's like this little voice inside going, stop. And you're like, oh, but, you know, it, it's just a little, I won't take, you know, I mean, it's only a few. And you have all these ways of getting around it, and all you're doing is the voice is getting a little louder, stop. And I'm sitting there doing something else, and the, 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 the Lord starts to whisper in my ear. I don't mean an audible voice, I'm just whispering in my heart. You need to read your Bible. You remember how you preached about reading the Bible every day two weeks ago? Well, have you? <laughs> the Spirit of God can be awfully pointed at times. And you know what? The Spirit of God works, and that's how sanctification works in understanding and obeying God's will. We're seeking for God's will. We're praying for God's will. We're, we're, we're Soaking our hearts and our minds in Scripture. We're renewing our minds and we're submitting ourselves completely. And finally, we obey the will of God as we come to understand it. Jesus' words. There is no greater example in all the Bible for obeying God's will when it gets really hard. And Lord Jesus, listen to his words. They're recorded for us in three books in three places. He said in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, Not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. In other words, let somebody else accomplish this, but let someone else do it. But if it's not that way, then not as not my will, but your will be done in my life. Obedience looks like that. Jesus said in John 4, 34, he said, My food is to, the, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' example of obedience to God's will is never to act on his own initiative, but always to seek God's will first. Why was Jesus such a man of prayer? Because he was constantly seeking his father's will and his father's blessing and his father's guidance in all the things that he did. Jesus' example of obedience was in teaching his disciples to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven and on earth. He was teaching us to pray, Lord, do your will. Let your will be done in my life, the life of everybody in this church this day, as surely as it's done in heaven every single moment. Jesus' example for us to follow is complete and total surrender to God's will for us. 
most importantly and greater, sorry, he had more important and greater satisfaction than eating in following God's will. And his, his example for us was to always seek God's will without acting on his own initiative. Remember this, last thing we're going to talk about. I've given you a lot, and I know it. I know some of it's been hard stuff to swallow. But I want to go, I want to close up with some great promises that God gives us to enable us to do His will. Understand it completely, as Paul's saying here. Remember God's promises to us regarding the obedience to His will. Scripture promises us that God will equip us with all that we require to do His will in Hebrews 13 and verse 21. Scripture promises us that God will work in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Listen to Paul's words in the Philippians. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What a great verse that is. God's working in you. You have a desire to follow the Lord. You have a desire to be obedient to His will. He put it there. Not only did He put the desire there, He'll actually work it out so you can do what God calls you to do. He doesn't say, here, climb Everest, but I'm not going to help you one take one single step. He says, here, climb Everest of my will, and I will put my strength and my spirit in you. I'll give you my word. I'll surround you with believers. Those gone ahead of you will cheer you on as you climb your way up God's will. He gives us everything, and He works that which is pleasing in His sight. Scripture promises in John 7, verse 17, that if we are willing to do God's will, we will know whether teaching is from God or not. Do you get that? If we're willing to do His will, we will have the wisdom and discernment to understand what is God's teaching and what is not. You know how you recognize false teaching? It's knowing the truth, number one, and a desire to do what the truth is. God will give you that discernment. Scripture in Jesus' own words, we've got to finish with this, promises us eternal life will be our reward if we do God's will. He said in Matthew 7, 21, I've read it already, read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he, by implication, she, who does the will of God, it's the will of my Father, sorry, who is in heaven will enter. What's he saying? He's saying it's not those who say, Lord, Lord. It's those who are obedient to the will of God. Those are the ones that enter in. So Paul, way back in Ephesians 5, 17, is saying, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Don't be ignorant of God's will. Don't be unwise about how you live. Don't waste your time on ungodly, worldly pursuits. Be wise. Take full advantage of your time for His glory. Be wise and understand what God's will is so that you may do it. That's what God's calling us to do. Be careful how you live, Christian. I, I couldn't think of a higher level of folly in all of life than to go through life thinking that you're saved, thinking that you have a home in heaven because you say, Lord, Lord. Because you go to church once every few weeks.
because you've been baptized, but you do not submit yourself to the will of God. You have no desire whatsoever for holiness and godliness. You have no desire to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, and then look at you and go, sorry, don't recognize you. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's the height of folly. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Jesus came and died on a cross to set us free from sin, to set us free from slavery, to set us free from hell, to set us apart and make us a people for himself. And Paul says, listen, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of God is. And the implication is understand it to obey it. May God help us all to do it. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll sing the benediction. Loving Father, we come before you again and we give you thanks, O oh God, for your word. And Father, just picturing in my mind's eye the scene on top of the mount, and Jesus is standing there, and he has spent some time teaching and preaching on what is the way kingdom life is to be lived. And Father, I can almost picture him standing up as he begins to walk down the mountain. And he walks in between his followers and walks in between those people of Israel. And he looks at them. And he says, many will come on that day and say, Lord, Lord. Father, it is my prayer this morning that no one in this room will stand before you on that great day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And with great sadness, you will say, depart. I didn't know you. But Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, O God, for the word of God before us. We thank you for what it teaches about understanding your will. It is your will, O oh God, that we trust you and repent of sin and walk before you all the days of our lives, seeking your will. Father, teach us to do according to your will. Teach us your scriptures. Teach us the word of God that we might live in obedience to you. Father, drive this church, all of us, Lord, Elders, deacons, members, attendees, every single person who comes into this church, drive us onto our knees, O oh God, that we would cry out to know your will, to live in obedience to it. Father, give us, I pray, a passion for godliness and a passion for holiness, a passion to obey your word, to live out what it teaches. Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you, O oh God, for filling us with your Holy Spirit to hear what you would say. 
Father, thank you for the fact that you're working in each of our lives both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Oh, God, I pray that you would keep doing that work. Do that work in each person in this room today. Work in us, oh, God, today. Father, for those who can't be here for one reason or another, Father, I plead with you that they would be sitting under the sound of the gospel somewhere else sitting under the sound of the Word of God, preached faithfully. Father, I ask you for your blessing. I plead with you, O God, I cry out to you, O God, that you would revive us again according to your Word. Renew in us, O God, that first love that we had. Father, I pray there are some smoldering wicks and some bruised reeds in this room and in this church. And Father, I pray that you would fulfill your word, not crush it out, not break them off, but, Father, gently coax them back into life. Father, as we come again this evening to sing and to worship, to sit under the sound of your word again, Father, I pray that you would bring many to hear, many to be a part of the service, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. And to hear about a God unlike any other God. There is none like you, O God. And we rejoice and we give thanks. Father, strengthen your people, I pray, according to your word. Father, we ask you all these things and we cry out to you, O God, for your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.